Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, every week here at Liberty Collingswood, after the reading of the sermon passage, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illumine us to this, your very word. Spirit, we need you this morning for a passage that probably seems very foreign to many of us. Would we understand and be molded by faith? Thank you, Lord, that for all of the strangeness of this passage, 
points us ahead to Jesus, the one given for us and for the world who is pleased to give grace. Lord, in the exercise of the reading and the preaching of your scriptures, would we know the gracious presence and welcome of Jesus. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. What do you do when you make big mistakes? I don't mean the small ones. I mean the big ones. What do you do when you really mess up bad? Probably most of us in this room, we've made the small mistakes here and there periodically. And when we make the small mistakes, it's fine. We'll try to muddle through one way or another. But the big mistakes, they're a different story. The big mistakes that we make in our lives, that's when there's damage. That's when there are consequences. If we make those big mistakes, our lives, both for ourselves and those around us, they become catastrophes. Everything has changed. The big mistakes in our lives are the things that we think about over and over and over again. Why? Why did I do that? How could I ever have gone in that direction? And I can't believe that I'm still paying the bill on that set of mistakes. It's so hard. With those big mistakes, those are the sorts of things where periodically you might have a dream. When in that dream, you're imagining your life, and that damage, those consequences didn't happen. And you feel great. But then you wake up again to reality. And that damage... And those consequences are still there. Now, perhaps for some of you, maybe a lot of you either watching online or here in the room, you haven't yet made those types of big mistakes. But maybe you will. Maybe at some point later on. And if you think about it this way, nobody plans on ruining their lives by big mistakes, right? Nobody says... I have made a note to self that in seven months and four days, I will find myself saying, I have made a huge mistake. It just kind of happens. A couple from my own experience. At a couple different points in my 20s, I was unemployed looking for pastoral work. Sending out a lot of resumes to a ton of different places. I, it was funny then, it's funny now. Just out of seminary, I applied to everywhere, including some of the biggest churches in our country. Like, hey, would you like 23-year-old Jim Anger to be the next pastor of your mega church? They came back and said, no, we actually do not want that at all. But in the process of applying for a lot of different jobs, as I thought about my own self, my own skill set, my own calling, my sense of calling, I had gotten some job offers for associate pastor jobs of various kinds, but I turned them down because I thought, and that this doesn't make me better or worse than any other pastor or church worker. I saw myself as a leader, a solo pastor, and so I was focusing on those types of jobs. But then the months of unemployment in these couple of cases continued to mount. And so I wondered, am I causing ruin to my family? by this set of choices that I'm making, 
by refusing jobs that paid relatively well and had a fair measure of job security? By saying no to these things, am I simply hoisting my family on the petard of my own egotism and arrogance that, no, these jobs are not for me? Or marriage-wise, nothing criminal, but there have been a small handful of times in the life of my marriage where things that I have done, things that I have said, I've thought to myself, I don't know if our marriage can recover from these things because of my mistakes. In those moments, whatever they are, where does your hope come from? Where does your hope come from? And I know this is a sermon. It might sound trite, but it's true. I believe that for any of us, ultimately, our only hope comes from God comes from grace. God, bless all of the mess that I have made. God, I need you to show up right now because I can't fix it. It is too big. And God, in process, over time, unilaterally, can turn down the dial on that damage to bring arcs of redemption to the messes that we make. And that doesn't mean that we can presume, well, if I'd made all of these mistakes and if I'm following Jesus, then God's going to do X, Y, and Z. It's going to be just fine. It doesn't work like that. But still, our God has a track record of showing up in our mess. And unilaterally, not because we deserve it, we're the one causing the damage to give grace. And this long, weird passage that I read, the entirety of Genesis chapter 5, this is one of those passages where God is on record to say, I'm going to give grace. I'm going to give mercy. And when I was reading this passage, we also had a genealogy in our Advent sermon series from the book of Matthew. Long genealogy, lots of names, lots of numbers. We'll wrestle with all of these things. Kind of seems boring, though. What's going on? Well, remember the placement here. If you've been tracking with the sermon series from the book of Genesis so far, we have had the fall. We have had curse. We have had pain so far. And for ancient readers that feel the effect of the curse and the punishment and God's wrath that has just occurred in the previous chapters, we see here, despite all of that, God still giving grace. God still being merciful, and there are intentional clues woven into this genealogy to say just that. Because we're broken people, because we're needy people, because we're weak people, because we're sinful people, we mess up a lot. But God works for blessing in our messes. That doesn't mean we're passive, that we just sit there and do nothing. We seek God's blessing. We seek God's face. But at the end of the day, if God's going to bless us in the midst of our damage, we need him to bless us. We have no plea except God's mercy. And we have even better hope than what we have for the original context of Genesis chapter 5. So 
two parts for the rest of the sermon from here. God bless this mess, part one, and then also how we might rebuild. God bless this mess, how we might rebuild, and two for each of these. How do we see God working for blessing here in a couple of different ways? The curse continues. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit. There's punishment, there's curse. Sin enters the world, originally so. And then it gets worse in Genesis chapter 4. The first murder, Cain. Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. Cain murders his brother Abel, the first murder. And by the end of the chapter, it accelerates again. As Lamech, a descendant of Cain, says, if Cain's vengeance was sevenfold, my vengeance is going to be 77-fold. So reading through in Genesis here, is it just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse for a story that is so dark and so grim so far? But the writer of Genesis says, not so fast. Here's some grace. And at the very beginning of this chapter, we have some callbacks pre-fall to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when life was good and awesome. Here are these callbacks in the first couple of verses. This is the book of the generations of Adam. We saw the generations earlier in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and an echoing of the creation story again. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man after they were created. And here's one of the great blessings post-fall. The image of God persists. Despite all of the damage and all of the consequences of human sin, look at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. God made male and female, same words, after his image, in his own likeness. And then Adam and Eve, Seth, after their image, after their likeness. The image of God persists, and that's grace in the mess. And if you've been in churches for a little while, maybe you've heard, yeah, of course we're made in the image of God. We get it. But let's linger there a little bit longer and not take it for granted. The fact that everybody is made in the image of God around the world and throughout the ages, that means everybody, no exception, has dignity and value. Everybody, no exception, has dignity and value. That was radical then, it's radical now. When we talked about the creation of our first parents in Genesis 1 and 2, I mentioned then that, sure, there were human beings and other creation stories in the ancient Near East where somebody was created in the image of God, but it wasn't everybody. In other stories, it was just the king. In other stories, it was just men. In other stories, it was just this one tribe. Radically, everybody is created in the image of God. And spinning forward from this Judeo-Christian story, that means everybody, even the widows, even the orphans, even the sojourners, even the foreigners, even the different tribes, as it spun forward from there, even groups that are minorities, even groups that are powerless, even groups that are at risk, everybody made in the image of God. And revolutionary as well, we're called to care for the least of these. We are called to value and dignify the image of God that everybody has been given. That is a persistent blessing of God through the ages. 
And as I dialogue with skeptical friends, people that aren't sure where they are with Christianity, or in some cases, really not on board with the Christian story or Christian program at all, sometimes I'll hear or be told, well, the problem with Christianity is it's just toxic. It's, it's against people, it's oppressive, it's repressive, it's anti-human, so yeah, I'm not going to be a Christian. In my snarky moments, I don't always reply this way one-on-one. -on -one. I'll say, would it kill you to say you're welcome for something like human rights? That comes from the Bible. It comes from the Judeo-Christian story. And it's not coming from anywhere. And sometimes friends of mine will say back, well, the march of history was going in this direction anyway. So sure, originally in the history of the world, human rights, image of God, that comes from the Bible, that comes from Judaism, that comes from Christianity. But we would have gotten there anyway. And even as I read headlines this morning, to me that is a naive view of history. That the march of history is going in the direction of human rights? Is that really true? Around the world to this day, there are many parts of the world where human rights has never caught on. Things like orphanages and hospitals, they came from the Bible, from the Christian story. And this morning, last I checked before I came here, Ukraine had not been invaded yet. It's terrifying. But it seems to me that the sound of the march of history is not let freedom ring, although we love that, it's the sound of jackboots that may soon be marching and sounding on cobblestones in Ukrainian squares. This past fall, the Atlantic Magazine had a cover story, The Bad Guys Are Winning, where on the rise all around the world are the autocrats and autocracy. So no, whether then or now, let's not take for granted that history is moving in this direction. We need to get back to the scriptures and say, this is why it must be so. And apart from the Christian story, what's the ground for human rights in the first place? A few weeks ago, I mentioned G.K. Chesterton, an English writer from about 100 years ago, who quipped that in the halls of science, we say that human beings are no more than beasts and animals, but then in the halls of politics, we turn around and decry the fact and lament the fact that people treat others as beasts and animals. We can't have our cake and eat it too. But here's a blessing. In the midst of all of your mess, in the midst of any damage that you may have caused, any consequences that you're living through, you and those around you and those around the world, the image of God persists. The value and the dignity is still there. You can't sin it. You can't harm it away. Generation after generation after generation. We see another blessing here, too, in the genealogies themselves. And you might have been wondering, and I said this during the genealogy sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, you may have had some moments of vertigo when you wanted to jump through the stained glass windows when it dawned on you, wow, Jim is going to read every verse in this passage right now, and I am a captive audience standing here until we get to the bottom of this cliff that the sermon bus is jumping off of right now. I get it. 
feels kind of boring. And there's a formula here, too, that also stretches some patience. So this guy, he lived a certain amount of years until he had a son who was named this. And then he lived another amount of years, had other sons and daughters, and then lived this amount of time after that. And then he died. Okay, that might be how we register this passage. But to original readers, don't treat this as a boring list. Like them, treat this as a montage. You're cheering when you read this story as you remember that this comes after the fall, where we have generation after generation after generation, and God's family, the image of God persists, and God is still blessing. If you watched the Super Bowl this past weekend, great montage at the beginning, and especially when teams that I love are playing in championship games or series I tune in for that montage where you see the slow motion and the deep mahogany voice talking about the, the, the power and the glory of these teams going together. Sometimes before I run, I'm a casual jogger. I'll watch a supercut, you can find it online, of the training montages of Rocky, where I get myself excited, where you see Rocky pounding the raw eggs and doing the one-arm push-ups and punching all of these things, and I'm ready to go on my run. And even if I come back more like Apollo Creed after he fought Ivan Drago, that's okay. I start fast because of these montages. This is a montage of God's blessing working itself out generation after generation after generation. And I get it too. It couldn't not have caught your ear and eye. What do we do with these ages? They're really long. And I believe that the internal logic of this passage is to say exactly. And I don't have an explanation as to exactly why and how these ages, like Methuselah all the way down, are like this. I would only mention as well that even in the first millennium BC, with more consistently recorded history, these old ages would have seemed really old even back then. Lifespans weren't that big even in the first millennium BC. So this is an old problem, these old ages. And even the ancient readers would have said they would have had their Forrest Gump moment. I am not a modern person, but I know what old is. So it rattled cages for a long time, and that's okay. So I take these ages by faith, understanding as well that it's not the span of these ages, but the significance. Because in the biblical mind, there's a recognition that these old ages, the longer you live, that's a sign of God's blessing. That's a sign of God's favor. That's a sign of God's grace in the midst of the mess. So we see these hugely long ages here and say, God is rich in blessing to his people, to his family, even after the fall. And so all the way for us, we make our messes. Unilaterally, God is at work to buffer our consequences. God is at work unilaterally to bless. And it's a stretch point of faith. Do we trust this for ourselves? For my own mess? For my own damage? Is it really going to happen that way? As you're exploring faith, maybe for the first time here among us, make it a point of prayer. Make it a point of stretching towards that trust. 
and turn it around too. We can think of it this way. What other hope do we have in our lives where we make huge messes? I've thought to myself at various times when I go to movie theaters or watch TV shows or movies at home, I want to bring a taboo buzzer and buzz that thing every time somebody says, it's going to be okay. I want to buzz that taboo buzzer and say, how do you know? Don't worry. Maybe one is embracing another. Everything is going to be okay. You don't know that. And I would say, if you believe in Jesus, you are absolutely able to say, everything is going to be okay because Jesus is going to come back. The world is going to be made new. There's going to be no more sickness or death or dying, and every tear is going to be wiped away. Take comfort in being able to say, everything's going to be okay. That's awesome. But in my view, outside of the Christian story, you have absolutely no grounds to say everything's going to be okay. Or another one. Everything happens for a reason. Tell me why. If what we're saying and what we're believing is that this universe is a completely random set of factors where atoms collect and disperse completely irrationally for all of time, and then things are just going to burn out and die... Saying that everything happens for a reason itself is even a category error. Because beneath that, there is a completely non-rational world and universe. In the Christian story, we're able to say things like, it's going to be okay, and everything happens for a reason. And whether you're a committed follower of Jesus or still exploring such things, it's a good position to be in when you get to the end of yourself. When you let yourself get to the end of yourself and say, if things are going to get better, I need God to show up. And if God doesn't show up and bless this mess, they're not going to get better. Cry out for the mercy of God in these hard places. Years ago at my first church, there was a man that came to church one day and plugged in. He was a dearly beloved member of our congregation. He had a really rough past, and he was very honest. He said, yeah, before I became a follower in Jesus, my life was all over the place. He was a drug dealer. He had been arrested. The charges had been dropped. There was a lot of damage in his family. But bit by bit, brick by brick, God was writing a redemption story in his life. And we loved him. But then one day, a letter came for him. He had been arrested in central Pennsylvania. Years beforehand, he got a letter and this is what happened. There was a new DA in that county who, by all accounts, was looking to notch some convictions and victories on his belt. He got a letter that said, hey, your case has been reopened. And you thought that you were a free man, but we have decided, after all, to press charges against you. And so he went from being a free man to potentially not so. And I, among others, wrote character references on behalf of this friend. And in court, the judge said, that pastor letter was interesting. And what I wrote in the letter is I said, Judge, this is a dearly beloved friend of ours. He came to us as a free man, completely honest about his past. We vouch for his character. We vouch for the fact that he is a changed man. But we don't expect you 
to take our word for it. That's not your job, to take our word for it. I don't know if you would believe or disbelieve a story like this. I respect the fact, Judge, that every day you make hard decisions based on the evidence before you. We are not telling you that you need to make the right choice because the crime was committed by this person. All we're asking for is that you be merciful. That's all we're asking. And the judge said, these letters came on the right day. I'm going to be merciful. That's our only plea. How do we rebuild? How do we live in to these mercies that are unilateral of God? And I'll put it this way. One of the great tensions in Christian theology, as it's been discussed and as we've gone back to the scriptures century after century after century, is that on one hand, God's grace is free, but then on the other hand, we're called to follow. If you believe in Jesus, understand that you are a miracle. You are a miracle of God's grace, and even the faith that you have towards God, that itself is a gift from God. And beneath your willing and choosing to become a follower of Jesus, putting your trust and faith in him, it was God's will by which he gave you a new heart, opened your eyes of faith, and enabled you to make that choice in the first place. So we live in this mystery of God's sovereignty and our agency. God blesses unilaterally. But then bilaterally, how do we move under God's mercy? Two ways. To live under God's blessing, invest in family. To live under God's blessing, invest in family. Back in Genesis chapter 2, I said, we'll get back to the importance of family. We see God's working through families generation after generation after generation here in Genesis chapter 5. That's God's design. The building block of God's blessing is through the human family. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Within our families, let the world go. That's okay. Let the world go and invest here. And I tell grown adults who've had really, really hard experiences with their parents, sometimes in ongoing ways, I'll say you can't fix your parents. And in many cases, you can't repair this relationship between you and your mom or your dad. But what you can do is invest in your own kids and let the circle of whatever it is, of neglect, of unlove, of violence, of abuse, of dysfunction, you can't fix it here, but you can sow seeds here. And God works redemptively throughout all of those generations. Those building blocks are vital. I thought of this again in the past couple of years, murder of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. I forget if I said it in the sermon, but I at least said it in podcasts at the time. Black Lives Matter, as, as churches weigh that, do Black Lives Matter as a sentiment? Absolutely. It's a full-throated yes. And the murder of George Floyd in aftermath, that, that reminded us and showed us that relatively more at risk are black lives in this country, so of course they matter. But then at another level, 
and I believe they've changed these things from the website, the Black Lives Matter organization, you click through and you see other things that say, Black Lives Matter as an organization is committed to the dismantling of the traditional family here in the West because the family here in the West has been a primary vehicle of oppression and harm in our world. So it's a full-throated yes to one and then a no to the other. And yes, families haven't always gotten it perfect. Has there been harm here? Yeah. Should we do a better job? For sure. But we're throwing out some very precious, God-driven baby with that bathwater if we say, let's just get rid of it. And I realize that what I'm saying here may cause some questions or some concern. All this talk about family. But what if, for example... I remember all this talk politically from the 80s and 90s about family values. And family values, a lot of the time in political rhetoric, it just sounds really mean. And it's more about what people are against rather than what they're for. Or you might be thinking, I don't fit. What if I'm a single person? What if I'm a divorced person? What if I'm a widow or a widower? What if I'm a single parent? What if I feel like I don't fit into Christian marriage and God has called me for a season or longer into living a chaste life outside of marriage? Does that mean that I'm a second-class citizen in the family of God? What if my family has caused a lot of pain for myself? And hearing about how great family is is re-traumatizing to me. As Zadie Smith's contemporary article said this about family. But it's my sense that no matter how many rooms you have and however many books and movies and songs to claim the wholesome beauty of family life. The truth is the family is always an event of some violence. It's only years later in that retrospective swirl that you work out who was hurt and in what way and how badly. So we lament how families have caused harm. But we don't give up. And similarly to what I said a couple of minutes ago, Compared to other ancient Near Eastern traditions, the importance of family was not unique to the Christian story. It was not unique. But what's unique to the Christian story is a balance of the importance of the family and care for those who are not in one, at least presently. For the widows and the orphans and the sojourners, for those that don't fit, for those that are outside. There is a deep call to say, you've got to care not just for the families, but for everybody, for the other. And in God's plan, God has given a different body, a different family, not just the nuclear family, but the family of the church. It says, here's another family. Paul talks about the church as a body of Christ in the New Testament. One body, many parts. And in the body of the church, what in the eyes of the world might look like unpresentable or less honored parts of who people are, those are the parts that we hold in the most honor and the most esteem and value the most beautifully. Jesus, as he was dying on the cross, started a family. So important is family for outsiders to the people of God. Jesus dying on the cross in John chapter 19, John's gospel, saw his mom, Mary, who is losing her boy, and the beloved disciple, and said, Woman, here is your son. And man, speaking to John, here is your mother. Here's a family. 
We live under God's blessing as we invest in both families. Invest in both. If you're in a family, invest in it. Don't take it for granted. We, we write ourselves excuse checks all the time. Yeah, I know I should be a better husband, parentheses, but I'm not. Yeah, I know I should be a better wa- wife, parentheses, but I'm not. Better parent, but I'm not. Better kid, but I'm not. Who cares? Nobody is good at this stuff anyway. Don't phone it in. Be present. And within the larger family of Christ, don't phone it in. Be present. And the glory of the messy body that is the church is that when people are connecting, it all works well again. For the glory of God, invest in both families. If you're in a family again, invest there. And if you're in a family church, invest there. If you don't fit, be patient. Churches have not always been great in having places for people in the family of the church that aren't in families themselves. Be patient with us, even at Liberty Collingswood, as we try to get better at saying, hey, it's not just for families, it's for everybody. And if you're in a family, be proactive to reach out outside of the family. And this is true for me. I need to build community against my type. Because if it's just me going in easy directions, and there's nothing inherently wrong with this, but who is it easiest for me to hang out with? People that look like me. Other middle-aged white dude dads. So that when I'm with my own tribe, people will say, yes, I've been looking for this dad bod cosplay convention, and I found it right here. This is great. But I need to reach out and stretch beyond that. And that's when churches look truly beautiful. That's when we savor the redemption of God generation to generation to generation in the life of our church. How might you invest more, either within your family or outside? Let me wrap up here briefly. The other way to walk in the scope of God's blessings simply is to walk with God. When we read genealogies, we look for the seams where things deviate from the formula or from the norm. That's with Enoch. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Repeated twice in that paragraph about Enoch, Enoch walked with God. And that is a rich metaphor for being intimate with God. Walk with God. In the Represents Initiative here at Liberty Collings, we talk about third-way walk and worldview. Worldview, thoughts, things to think about and process, all that stuff is great, but it's a walk. It's practical, intimacy with God. And if you want to make a resilient way forward through a world that is damaged with God's buffered blessing upon you, practice our practices of presence. We're talking about it in our small groups right now. These are essential things. To hear God's blessing and walk in God's blessing. Practice daily office. Practice gathered worship. Practice Sabbath keeping. Practice feasting and fasting. Practice gospel friendship. Practice missional living. Practice generosity. Practice service. Practice these things that you would walk with God in the midst of all the damage. Understanding at the end of the day, though, that we can't actualize God's blessing any of our mess. That lever is not ours to pull, it's God's. 
unilaterally, blessing comes from the end of the passage. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. From out of the ground, Noah, and our better hope, more clear, more deep. From out of the ground, out of the tomb, Jesus of Nazareth rose. Our hero, our rescuer, our deliverer, the one that took all of our sin, all of our damage, all of our consequences, the very wrath of God for these things came upon the Son, that all who come to him would be freed in faith and have hope. Because in Jesus, everything is going to be okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.